Amen. All right, First Samuel chapter 21. From this section on in First Samuel, it's almost like we're watching a uh, <laughs> sitcom almost because it goes back and forth, back and forth. Every chapter, there's like a, it's hanging on something. And uh, it's, it goes back between David, who's ascending to the throne, and Saul, who is descending from the throne. Um, the throne was taken from Saul, rem- remember, because of his disobedience. And back in uh, chapter 15, Samuel, the priest at the time, said basically, because of your disobedience, Saul, you nor anyone else in your line will retain the throne. It's going to be taken from you, right, from someone else. Saul doesn't know that that person is David yet, but uh, the Spirit of God was taken from Saul, and he was given a tormenting spirit from God to bug him and irritate him. And so when this would happen, uh, he was kind of uh, perturbed, and they found out that David was able to play the lyre, and so they invited him into the court, and he became part of the the uh, help for Saul and was obedient in that matter. And yet we had Samuel kind of uh, commit uh, David to being the, the new king, but it hasn't really, the transaction really hasn't taken place yet officially. So Saul is still reigning. And Saul is becoming more and more bitter because the people are uh, liking David a lot more than Saul. And uh, he's done everything Saul has asked him to do and has been successful in everything he's done. And Saul looks at this, and uh, when the ladies coming back from one of the battles said, oh, you know, uh, Saul has killed thousands, David's killed tens of thousands. He got really jealous, and uh, one time when he was in there, playing his liar for Saul to feel better. Uh, He threw a couple spears at him, tried to kill him. It's happened a couple times. And then finally, he struck up a friendship, which we looked at last week with Saul's son, David, or Jonathan. And Jonathan and David became good buddies. And Jonathan told David, you might want to think of getting out of here because my dad is on the (laughs) warpath. And that's kind of where we left it. Last week, uh, we saw this touching friendship between Jonathan and David. It says in the last verse of 20, and he, he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And so today, we see another uh, kind of sense of loyalty to David from one of the, the priests, Ahimelech. And so we'll pick up here in, in verse 1 of chapter 21. But we're talking about loyalty of, of friendship. What's it mean to be a loyal friend? Uh, and what we're going to find out in this, in this chapter as we go through it, we're going to see where actually David wasn't completely honest. He actually told a lie. When he came in contact with the priest, he said, well, I'm here because the king sent me on this certain detail and we need some provisions. Can you help us out? Which is all a toward tale that he just made up, basically. And so you want to ask the question, um, can God use sin for his glory? Can God use our sin for his glory? And when you stop and you think of that question, you're thinking, hmm, 
Are there any examples in Scripture of this? Well, this is one. Another one in the New Testament would be the, the murder of Christ, right? Jesus Christ was put on a cross. He was an innocent man. That was a sinful act on behalf of the people who crucified him. And yet God was able to turn that around and use it for his glory. So the first question we want to kind of ask ourselves as we go through the study tonight is, can God use sin for his glory? The answer, obviously, is yes, he can. But then you ask the next question, and it's simply this. Should I sin for God's glory? Right? We've gone through that in Romans, you know, where grace abounds, sin abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So, hey, let's just sin it up in God's grace, and therefore got to get more glory because we're sinning more. Well, we know that the answer to that is obviously no, we should not sin on purpose. But it brings up some good questions that we can think about or talk about at the end, you know. Um, you hear sometimes where people are either harboring missionaries or maybe they're smuggling Bibles into a country or something like that, and they're asked, you know, is there anyone else in your house or whatever? And um, a lot of times people think that, well, situational ethics kicks in. It's better to lie than to have that person killed, right? And that's not really a biblical answer when you stop and think about it. Lying is always lying. It doesn't matter what the reason you're lying is. So, well, exactly. That's part of the point. But I don't think that that that's part of God using things for his glory, right? I don't think she was justified in her lying about the spies. And I don't think anywhere in Scripture does it say that God justifies lying. It says just the opposite. Um, but what God was honoring Rahab was, was for what? Her, her faith. Okay. So... Uh, when we stop and think about these things, you know, it kind of all comes into play in these chapters, really, through the end of the book. But it's kind of like every other chapter. Is, oh, wait, where's Saul now? Where's David now? Okay, he's chasing, Saul's chasing David, and David's running around, and he's got all these people around him. And, you know, so it's kind of an interesting, I heard one commentator uh, who said it's kind of like uh, a modern commentator. He said it's kind of like watching... 24, you know, the, the series 24 is like you're always hanging at the end of the show. And he said, you know, the, the logical way to watch that is to just buy the whole CD, DVD series and sit down and watch 24 hours of it. Then you don't have to deal with hanging until next week and trying to remember what happened last week and all that. So it's kind of almost like that here from chapter to chapter. We're all over the place. And so we want to be thinking about that. But in, when we pick up chapter 21 here, Saul is not doing too well. And he's dealt with his disobedience and this judgment from Samuel. The throne's going to be taking, uh, taken away from him. But So let's pick up here in verse 1. It says, Then David came to Nob, which is just about a mile from Jerusalem, and Himelech, the priest, and Himelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now, some people say, well, why was he... You know, why was he trembling? Well, you remember, David is is not just anybody, okay? I mean, uh, he knew who David was, and he's probably thinking, hmm, why is he coming here night to my house? Who, You know, what does he want? Uh, we're not really told anything more than that, but he came there for, sought him out for uh, provisions. And so at this point, the king, or the, uh, the priest, kind of has to make a decision what 
what am I going to do about this? Am I going to go to King Saul and say, hey, he's here, he's here? You know, but he shows a concern for him. Um, and he, first of all, he asks, why are you alone? Because someone like David would not usually travel alone. And notice David doesn't offer any answers. He doesn't say, oh, the king's after me, and I've got to find refuge. He doesn't say any of that. Um, he says, why is no one with you? It's just an odd thing to have him. It'd be like, you know, President Trump showing up to your front door at 11 o'clock at night. And you're going, why are you here? you right. I mean, where's the Secret Service? Where's the helicopters? Where's the, you know, all the feds that surround you? All the, why are you here? You'd, you'd, be, you'd be thrown off. You'd be like, wow, this is kind of an odd situation. Well, that's kind of how this priest felt at this time. But it shows here that he was concerned for a couple things. And this is kind of his loyalty, and this is what was causing consternation in Saul's heart, that these people had an undue loyalty that was growing for David. And Saul was getting ticked off the more and more he saw it. I mean, he's out to kill this guy. And yet people were lauding him and just, you know, watching out for him. And he can't, he can't seem to pin him to the wall, literally. So he was concerned for his physical welfare because he says there in, in verse... One, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? I mean, he's, he's concerned literally for him. That word uh, Ahimelech means my brother is king. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting, interesting name. But he was, you know, a, a priest. And he, he came before, uh, David came before him. But it tells us here that in verse 2, And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now, that's a complete fabrication. That's just a bold-faced lie. Now, you might say, well, why would he do that? Well, maybe he's looking out for the priest. <laughs> just in case somehow Saul finds out that David came to the priest, he would have an out. He could say, hey, David told me that you sent him here. I don't know. I don't know anything about anything else. You know, I didn't know. He didn't say that he was at, you were after him. So, you know, you can't get me up on harboring a fugitive because I didn't know he was a fugitive. He didn't tell me that. Whatever David's motivation was, we don't know. But we find out in this chapter that it, or in the next chapter, that it backfires <laughs> drastically. Um, and so he says, let no one know anything of the matter about which I am sending you. He said, the king said this, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young, with the young men for such and such a place doesn't give any details. It's obviously a fabrication. Verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? In other words, we need some provisions. There's a couple things wrong with this story. If he's traveling with all these people, where are they? <laughs> I mean, that would be my question. Wait a minute. And plus, if he's traveling with an entourage and the king sent him on this, this big matter to, to deal with this stuff, usually they would take a garrison of people with him or whatever uh, that he would be in charge of. And he's only asking for five loaves of bread. Well, that's not going to feed a lot of men. So there's a lot of questions here about this. He says, give me the five loaves of bread or whatever's here. He's telling the priest this. Verse 4, and the priest answered David and said, I have no common bread on hand, but there's only holy bread. So in their culture, they, the, the priest would have, it'd be kind of like the modern day thing would be, um, like the Catholic Church, how they treat the communion bread. You know, it's this holy thing. We know it's not, but that's how they treat it. Um, that's how they viewed this. Okay, the priest was given the responsibility to furnish this bread for the tabernacle or the temple or whatever 
they were doing, and it was to be a kind of a, a source of a sacrifice for the Lord. And so it wasn't just common bread. And so the priest says, I don't have any common bread to give you, um, but let's see if I can figure something out here. And this kind of goes into the spiritual nature of Ahimelech's concern for David. He says, the priest answered, I don't have any common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. I, I do have some, some, some loaves of bread that, that are designated as holy bread. And then he says this, if the young men have kept themselves from women. So in their culture, when sexual relations would happen, that was a source of uncleanness. When any, whenever any bodily fluid, whether it's blood or anything else, would leave the body, it, would, it, would, it signified death. Even if it was in a sexual situation, it would still be, you'd be designated as unclean. So you had to go through this whole process before you go to the temple. You could do all that. It's just part of their culture, part of their, their, their belief. And so the priest is kind of saying, hey, I got this holy bread, but, you know, I can't just give it to anybody. This is just for the priest. This is kind of designated to the Lord. Um, and if, if the, the guys that you're going to give this to haven't had any relationships with women, then I'm okay with it. And David answered the priest and said, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessel of the young men, their body, are holy even when... It is an ordinary journey. How much more today where their vessels be holy? So he's just kind of answering the priest. But there is no man with him. He's alone. Okay, so it's kind of a made-up deal here. So in verse, so he, he, the, the priest wants to meet his physical needs, obviously, but also meet his um, Spiritual needs. He's watching out for his spiritual welfare. He's saying, look, if I just give this to you and you desecrate this, you're going to be in trouble, and I'm going to be in trouble. I don't want that to happen to you. So you see the, the kind of loyalty that people had. They, they, you know, whether the king understood that David was the chosen one and all this, it doesn't really tell us, but there's some indication somehow that he knew something was, was going on with David at this point because he did, uh, he wanted to be very, very careful with you know, uh, doing something that would would harm or disgrace David spiritually. And, you know, he, he specifically went to this town, the, the town of, what is it, Nod, Nob, um, where it's known as the city of priests. And so this is where the, the priests would be. And uh, a lot of people believe that Ahimelech was Eli's grandson, and he probably would have known David by sight. So... Uh, whether he sensed something was wrong with David or whatever, and he's, David's telling him the story, and Ahimelech's just going, okay, okay, you know, wink, wink. Um, we'll see if we can get you some, some food here. Now, what's interesting, when you jump over to Matthew, go over to Matthew, because this, this whole incident is actually cited by Jesus, which is just amazing. Um, Matthew chapter 12. Now here, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is being accused of breaking the Sabbath, okay? And so we'll, we'll just read this, and then you can see how it applies to what we're talking about. In, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So they're calling him out on legalistic regulations. And he said to them, and look, this is what the incident we just read about, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, that holy bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So that was what uh, Ahimelech was trying to point out to David, is I just can't give this to anybody. Uh, Verse 5 goes on, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is doing there is he's setting a new standard. You know, this isn't situational ethics, as some people say, well, it's different because that's a situation. No, he's just basically saying, look, you can't lose the forest through the trees. Um, and, And we don't have... We don't use the law of God in a legalistic sense and forget about the gracious aspect of God. So he talked about mercy versus, you know, sacrifice. And so he's confronting the the Pharisees in that situation, but he's using this situation with David way back then to do it. He's saying, look, you know, the guy was hungry and he wasn't unclean at the time. And it's it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) It's really not. And so... You know, what was a bigger deal was probably him telling that lie, telling the the mistruth that he did. Um, So when you when you go down here in the passage, it says that he basically gives him uh, this bread. And um, he says, so the priest gave him the holy bread, verse six, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence which he removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread, which was cyclical. They would do this every week on the day it is taken away. Uh, And so the priest did this out of the kindness of his heart. And so it says in verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. Now why he was there, we don't know. He was an Edomite, so he's a Gentile. Uh, Some said, well, maybe he converted over and became, you know, uh, is we don't know. But it, it, I don't think so. Uh, some people say that he embraced the Hebrew religion. Uh, but he was there for some reason, and maybe because it was the Sabbath, he couldn't leave. Because you weren't allowed to travel on the Sabbath. So maybe he was just hanging out there. We don't know. But uh, he was one of Saul's servants. So this is obviously David's enemy. And he sees, ah, David's here. And he was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. We'll just call him Doug. Okay, Doeg's kind of a weird name. We'll just call Doug. Doug the Edomite. Uh, he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, you don't get to be chief of a group of people without proving yourself. So this guy had probably some some battle experience he had some you know loyalty to Saul and he was one of his servants then David said to Ahimelech in verse 8 then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand in other words I don't have anything all I got is five loaves of bread do you have any you know weapons that I could use because uh we got to deal with this situation I can't tell you about, which was a total lie, but uh, he says, for I brought neither 
my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business requires haste. (laughs) So what required haste was him getting out of the king's business quickly before he got pinned to the wall with a spear so he couldn't take anything with him. But he doesn't even tell him all that. He just says, hey, I'm in a hurry, and I, I had to leave in a, a quick fashion, and we, I don't have any weapons. Do you have anything? And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is uh, here wrapped in the cloth behind the ephod. They kept it kind of as a spoil of war. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. So you see, okay, there's, there's nothing but holy bread. <laughs> he kind of didn't have any other bread to give to There's nothing but this probably big sword that David, that Goliath wielded against David. How, how ironic is that? And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. In other words, hey, this is, this is a good find. This is, this is going to be good. And so uh, Ahimelech really provides for his spiritual need is physical need and shows a, an undue loyalty uh, to David. Now, unfortunately, this gets him in a lot of trouble, <laughs> which we're going to find out real quick here. So in verse 10, so first of all, to provide for the needs of your friend, that's what loyalty means. Secondly, it means to protect the life of your friend. And this is where it gets kind of nasty here in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from, from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Uh, so we don't know if he somehow figured out, oh, this guy's one of Saul's servants. I got to get out of here, whatever. He takes off. And verse 11, and the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Now, who was Achish? Achish was basically a, a king of Gath, who was, which was one of the Philistine cities. So if you, if, you, if you think about this, here's David. He's got Goliath's sword, who was the Philistine that he had just killed. And in haste, he takes off running, and he ends up in Gath, a Philistine city. Now, whether this was by design, you know, a lot of times um, police tell me that when uh, people who uh, start fires, people who commit murders, people who do things like this, They'll literally go to a scene, and commit their crime, and then they circle around and they watch from a distance. And they're, they're just drawn back into that environment, okay? Thinking, hey, well, they're not going to suspect me. I'm standing right here. So I, why David did this, we don't know, but uh, we'll find out here in a second. But he rose and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Now, that was kind of premature because who was the king? It was still Saul. Somehow they had heard that he had been anointed king or whatever, and maybe some of the people kind of looked forward to this, whatever. But um, it was kind of a misstatement there on, the, on behalf of the, uh, the king. And, and it says, and they, and they, did, uh, and they uh, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? This is what the lady sang, remember, when he came back from the battle? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So remember, the first time they, they sang that was when? When King Saul allowed David to go out and fight against the Philistines and wiped them all out. And when they came back, they had a big parade. And the women are coming out, wow, you know, Saul struck down his thousands. But David, 
He struck down tens of thousands. Then that's where the jealousy began to set in. But it wasn't anything about him being king at that point. It was just like, wow, this guy's a great warrior. You know, Saul's a great warrior, but this guy's even better. But now, what's happening? That same song from the ladies is not attributed to his ability to, to, to make war, but to be king. That's how they're looking at it. And so, because the, that's what the guy says, is this not the king? David, the king of the land, did they not sing to one another of him and dances? So they're hearing all this stuff, and they, they turn the kind of situation around here, and it becomes very precarious for David. All of a sudden, he's realizing, wow, okay, they're thinking I'm the king when I'm not really yet. There's still Saul. Saul's their enemy. But now they're probably thinking I'm their enemy, and they have... A, a, I was doing the bidding of the king, of King Saul. That's why I had to kill Goliath and do all that. But now they're, they're kind of turning on me. And so he realized that his life is in danger here. He's basically being held captive by the Philistines here. There's a lot more of them than there is him. He has nobody else with him. So what happens? Well, look at verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down into his beard. What was he doing? He's putting on an act. He said, I'm just going to act like a nut. I'm going to act like I lost my mind, like I'm crazy. And maybe they'll just let me go. Uh, It's interesting sometimes how God provides for us. You know, he provided this holy bread. He provides this sword from the, the foe that he just fell, the Goliath, the Philistine. And now he's providing protection, but through him acting like he's insane. It's just kind of an interesting situation. But he, he definitely uh, faces this, this, this problem of... Um, Uh, being in harm's way. And then it says in verse 14, Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. In other words, okay, why did you even bring this guy to me? Who cares who he is? He's nuts. Look at him. He's dripping spit all over himself. He's a mess. Why have you brought him then to me? Do I lack madmen? We got enough of these people in our city. (laughs) Get rid of them. That you have brought me this fellow to behave as the madmen in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, I don't, I don't have time for this, folks. And, and that's really what he's doing. And so he, he, he basically points out here that verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard of it, they went down there to see him. And everyone who was, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So you see, God raised up Saul. Remember, God was kind of their leader, Israel. They wanted a king. God said, ah, this isn't going to be good. Samuel, okay, give him a king. Ah, this isn't going to be good. Even Samuel argued it. This is, this is going to be somebody who takes advantage of you. You don't want this. No, we want a king like everybody else has a king. Okay, you got a king. But it's not the king that God ultimately wants for them. But he gives them Saul as king to teach them a lesson. And so this lesson continues to unfold here. 
and uh, he faces this this issue that that shouldn't be 23 that should be 15 by the way on, on that I'm just looking at that the problem he faced um, but what what's what's important here is that he, he he faces this issue and God continues to protect him through giving him creative ability to act like a madman and and get out of there he ends up in this cave of Adullam and um, it's it's really a cave near uh, uh, kind of a, a cave of refuge is what it was what it was referred to, and he's kind of it's kind of on his way to his home. Uh, they say, and so he's he's holed up there, and his family hears about his plight, and they end up coming out and identifying with him. They 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 gather around him. They they want to make sure that um, he is he's okay. Now, these are the same family who basically, after he was anointed king, what they do? They put him back out to pasture. You know, they say, hey, get out there and uh, uh, go back to the sheep, kid. You know, who do you think you are? But I think they're beginning to realize that, wait a minute, God has a greater plan here. And so they come to check out on their little brother and their son. And, and, and these people are feeling the pressure, remember, of King Saul, who is fulfilling what Samuel said he would do. As we're going to find out, he begins to take everything from the people and things like that and, and, and abuse the people. But turn over to Psalm 34 once because this talks a little bit about David. Remember, David wrote the majority of the Psalms as well. And this kind of describes some of the, the, the situation that he was in and how he dealt with this. I mean, you can imagine being in the land of the Philistines after the, he just took out their giant warrior, Goliath, and he's there not with a mighty army. He's there all by himself. And they actually have him hostage. And so, uh, verse 34, it says, Of David, when he changed his uh, behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And this is kind of the, the mindset here. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to me are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is exactly what David was doing. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So remember, he was hungry and he asked for some bread. God provided it. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, which is kind of ironic because that's what he just did, right? Um, Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers delivers him out of all of them. 
He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will say to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. <clears throat> so this is David's faith that we're seeing really played out here in, in live action right in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. Um, and the folks that came to uh, be be part of this, to... to uh, help David, or his, his family, they, they really could identify with him. They were dealing with the same things, distress, debt, discontent. They, they were stressed out because of all that was going on with their king and, and how he was taking advantage of them. And so they came down there, and they gathered him, and he became commander over them. And there, and, and there were with him about 400 men. So all of a sudden... Uh, David is completely alone. He's on the run, and yet God provides uh, for him. And he, he provides people who not only can be there to help, but their family. They're, they're, they're people that respect him. They're people that look up to him. And so now he's got basically an army of 400 people, which is not a small little army. That's a pretty good-sized thing. And uh, it, it tells us here... And David went from there to Mitzvah of Moab, and it must have been, he must have been on uh, one of his friends, or uh, at least he knew that somehow he was on his side, because he went to this, this king, the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. So he's at this point where he doesn't really know what's next. Uh, he doesn't know if Saul's going to show up and kill everybody. He has no idea. And so he says, I've got to get my family out of harm's way. They're, they're dealing with a lot of pressure here, and they don't need to be in harm's way um, just because, because I am. So he takes a place uh, of safety. He takes them to a place of, of safety. And then what's interesting, it says, uh, uh, he left them there with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in uh, the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, so God provides another prophet, and he tells him, hey, don't stay here. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And so he gets this pressure to leave this, this area where his family is and, and this other situation. And there's a, there's a, a reason God has for that. Um, well, what happens next is King Saul hears from Doug, the Edomite, uh, we'll call him Doug, uh, he went back and reported to his king after the Sabbath, ran back home, and said, hey, I, I saw this guy you're after. So verse nine, that's, or verse uh, 6, that's where that picks up. So Saul heard that David was discovered. They found him. And the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. So he's ready. He's got his spear. He's ready to go. Uh, and all his servants were standing around him, about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, which is the tribe he came from, so he's, he's realizing that the people of Israel are not respecting his leadership. They're not really following his leadership. They're... they're they have a lot of 
almost mocking things to say to their king. Remember, I think it was in the last chapter, the chapter before, and they said, oh, what, who, is Saul one of the prophets now? Remember when the Spirit of the Lord supernaturally came on him and allowed David to escape? And so they were mocking. So, oh, look at him. He's one of the, the prophets now. Look at him. He's doing... So they're actually, in a, in a, in a mocking way, making fun of this, of, of King Saul. That's how far down his credibility has gone with the people. And so when he hears, well, this guy's been discovered. He's got his spear in hand. All the servants are with him. And he says, hey, here now people of Benjamin, meaning probably just the clan that's loyal to him is who's around him. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? In other words, he's saying, hey, wait a minute. Why do you guys like David so much? I'm the one that has the ability to give you this stuff. Well, why does he have the ability to give them fields and vineyards? Remember what Samuel said before? If you get a king, what the king is going to do, he's going to take all your stuff. That's basically what Samuel summarized. No, 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 we want a king. Well, this is what's playing out. This is what Saul has done. He's basically confiscated all their goods. And he's like, hey, can David give these things back to you? Can he provide these things for you? I think not. Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? I mean, you know, he's on the run. He's he's, he's uh, uh, running away. He can't, you know... He can't do this. Verse 8, that all of you have conspired against me. So he's, he's really uh, calling their credibility into account. Now remember, he has the ability to just wipe them out if he wanted to. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. In other words, what, what, what's happening here is Saul, is, is he's got his own court of people around him and he's kind of chewing them out. He's like, look, when my son was out there making friends with my enemy, David, none of you came and told me because their loyalty was not to Saul. So he's, he's pretty much disclosing that to him, to them. He says, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. In other words, it's my son that's caused a lot of this to lie in wait as at this day. Now, that wasn't really even true. David was running. He's not out there trying to kill Saul. He's basically doing the bidding of Saul. Up to this point, he did everything Saul asked him to do. He was being obedient. Verse 9, then David, or then answered Doug, the Edomite there, Doeg, who stood by the servants of Saul. So the picture is Saul surrounded by all the servants. Doug, the Edomite's back there. He's made the journey back because it was a Sabbath, he couldn't leave, but now he's back there, and he was the one that saw David uh, with, with the priest, Ahimelech, and Saul's sitting up there chewing them all out, like, hey, you guys don't have my back. You're not telling me any information. I need information. And so Doug speaks up. Hey, got some news for you, king. Um, he stood by the servants of Saul, verse 9. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So, you know, if you want to know where David is, I have the answer and I even have the answer to people who are helping him. This priest. Yeah, total weasel. But that's probably why he was one of the chief leaders under Saul. And then in verse um, 11 it says, and the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest. Now remember, the 
kingship and the priesthood are two distinct things in Israel. They don't mix, generally. All right? The king was the one who's protecting, go to war and all that. The priest dealt with the spiritual things. And really, the, the priest, as it was properly supposed to work, was to go before the Lord, inquire of the Lord what to do, and then he would kind of instruct the king what to do. That's kind of the, the hierarchy here. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a level playing field. Um, that's why you have like Samuel, the priest, uh, pronouncing David is the next king and, and discounting Saul, uh, taking the, the king away from him. So it, it's, it's a, good, a good thing to understand because they're, they're not equal entities here. But this guy, Doug, says, yeah, I saw him before the king, and he helped him out. And, and that's what loyal friends do, help each other out. And so verse 11, it says, And the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So Saul said, you know what? I'm going to deal with this in a way that I haven't done before. And it's, it's very ironic because of the simple fact before when he was given a command by God to go and wipe out, remember, everybody, what did he do? He didn't. He took the spoils, he let some of them live. But watch what happens here. It's just, it's just amazing how far this guy has fallen from caring anything about God. Uh, so they all come before the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he might, uh, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this, as, as at this day. David wasn't lying in wait. This is all, you know, this is what jealousy does in someone's heart. It causes you to be kind of very skeptical of anybody. You're questioning anybody here. And so, He's, he's being a loyal friend. He didn't run. The priest didn't run. He probably figured out, okay, I'm in a lot of trouble here. But as a loyal friend, he went and he, he's giving an answer here before the king. And he, a hearty answer he does give. Look at what he says. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? So he begins to go through this kind of checklist, this bullet list of things that David has done for the king. Who is the king's son-in-law? Remember, he was able to marry the king's daughter, David. Uh, who is the king's son-in-law? And captain over your bodyguard. And honored in your house. He's saying, come on, king, remember who David is here. What are you talking about? Verse 15. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? In other words, this has happened before. I do this all the time. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, or to those, or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. In other words, you're nuts. I don't know what you're talking about. This, your accusations are, are falling flat. In verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die. That's his answer. That's it. Game over. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Remember, the king's surrounded by all his servants. And the king said to the guard who stood uh, around him, 
Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Remember, these are all the priests that came from Nob. Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he has fled and did not disclose it to me. Saul just lays down this edict, wiped these people out. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. That's an amazing thing right there. I mean, that's how, how far Saul has fallen as far as their, his credibility in the eyes of these people. They're like, this guy's nuts. You want us to strike the Lord's anointed? Are you crazy? And they refuse to do it. You know, there's sometimes in life where you have to take a stance that may not be a popular stance. It may even put you in harm's way. But it's the right stance to take. It may cause people to shame you. It may cause consternation against you, whatever it is. But you know that this would be honoring to the Lord. And these servants are just saying, there's no way we're going to do this. Um, Verse 18. Then the king said to Doug, (laughs) the Edomite, all right, these guys won't do it. I know you're, you're a pretty warrior kind of guy. You turn and strike the priests. And Doug the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. He not only struck down the priests, he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. In verse 19, in Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. So here is Ahimelech defending the, the character of his friend, and literally, he's willing to die for his friend. That's exactly what ends up happening. You know, the New Testament tells us, in those, those verses there I wrote down, 1 John 3, 3.16... And so, uh, and then also over in John fifteen, thirteen, uh, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And so, here you see all the way in the Old Testament this New Testament truth, kind of playing out that God is is He provides for His servants even in times of need, even in times of danger. And uh, sometimes he does that through the sacrifice of others. Psalm 52 speaks to a little bit of this. David writes in Psalm 52, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of the God endures all day long. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. This is Saul. I mean, this really depicts Saul here. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence 
of the godly. And so David here has experienced this, this incredible loyalty from these people that are definitely put, putting themselves in harm's way and to the degree that not only the priests were wiped out, but everybody in the whole place was. And the irony is, before, when God instructed Saul to do something like this, he didn't do it. But now, because it's against God, and it's against David, who represents, really, the, the kingdom of God, he's more than willing to, to go to the furthest extent. But, even at that, verse 20 says, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Itab, named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. So here, one of the, the, the priest's sons escapes barely, and he takes running out after David. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. That's why he took off before. I have occasioned uh, the death of all the persons of your father's house. In other words, really, this is kind of, it's on me. <laughs> so he says, verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. So what's he doing here? Uh, after they were willing to die for, out of loyalty to David, uh, he gives them uh, assurance. He gives them support. He gives them uh, his presence, and he says, look, you know, uh, King Saul's after you just as much as he's after, <laughs> after me, so just stick with me, and we'll, do, we'll deal with this together. Uh, so you, it's, it's kind of an odd couple chapters, but you see the loyalty of these people on the rise steadily for the future king, David, and you see how King Saul and his leadership and his ability to reign is just disintegrated to he's almost to the point where he's almost become a laughingstock. He's a mockery. They won't even obey his orders. And it doesn't seem like he has much uh, to do as a result of that. But he's purely operating out of jealousy and out of rage at this point. And that's, that's what happens when you allow those kind of things to take root in your lives. So we're trying to take two chapters a week. So next week, you see where David saves a city and then uh, he actually spares Saul's life. He has the opportunity to take Saul out and he doesn't. And it just shows you how credibility of David and the the righteousness that he has before God. He really wants to do what is the right thing to do before the Lord. He's not willing to allow revenge or any of that to take hold in his in his own heart and i think that's what the people are realizing and that's why they're respecting him and they're they're yielding really to his leadership more than saul's at this point